Good? Okay. Boy, sorry there's so much of me this morning with worship and everything. These holiday weeks, you know, people travel, so I, I stay put and uh, fill in where I have to, so it's good. Happy to, happy to lead worship this morning, and I'm really happy to get into a very short series that we're starting through the book of Malachi, Malachi the Italian prophet. Have you guys heard that? Yes, yes. I, 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 that book came up in a group of pastors I was with, and one pastor had never heard that. I'm like, it's like the oldest pastor joke in the book, Malachi the Italian prophet. It's really lame, but now we've done it. We've got it out of the way. I don't have to say it again. Uh, we're going through this book of Malachi, and we're just calling it the end of the beginning, the end of the beginning, uh, because like, as you open up your Bibles, which I would encourage you to do, there's one in front if you want, um, you'll find that Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's the, it's the end of the beginning. Uh, it's the end of the first collection of books that make up uh, the beginning of the Bible. In this collection, which we usually call the Old Testament, right? Or, or as I, I kind of prefer like the Hebrew scriptures, um, because we have, some, we have some cultural associations that are negative with old, right? Sorry, like we are a little bit that way. Uh, so, but they're in Hebrew. Uh, so I like to call them the Hebrew scriptures, and they emerge from a re- really particular time and place. Um, that is to say that they are books um, that were read by ancient Jews in Israel and are directed towards them, and yet we still read them. And uh, I think as we set out here, it's worth answering this question, which is, why teach from the Old Testament? Why, why would I do that? Or why should we read the Old Testament? Isn't it so old? Don't we have a new one to have replaced it? Right? Why, why do we just, like, why is it even in our Bibles anymore? Um, and it's sort of a question that, I mean, when I think about uh, the teaching ministry that I have here, like, I've sort of set that up because you may have noticed I have never done a sermon series or specifically a full sermon on an Old Testament passage. I I reference Old Testament passages now and then, but I never said, hey, let's do the book of Leviticus. Don't worry. It won't have that. That one won't. I will not do. (laughs) Well, maybe. (laughs) I should never say never. Uh, But I've never never done that and just like camped in an Old Testament book for a long time. So that's sort of on me, right? Um, Now, I have reasons for that, but I want to be clear. My reasoning is not because I think the Old Testament is somehow irrelevant or invalid or not important. Um, I know that's not true for two reasons. The first reason I know that's not true is, is that the New Testament makes it super clear that the Old Testament is still of value to Christians, right? You probably know uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, all Scripture, and certainly the writer here, Paul, would have thought of Scripture as the Old Testament. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for any good work. All the writers of the the New Testament absolutely considered the Old Testament to be Scripture, to have authority, and to be particularly useful for us to learn from, for for the various reasons listed there. It's it's for, for teaching, it's for rebuking, it's for correcting, it's for training in righteousness, so that we might have a complete and thorough understanding of what God is up to. The Old Testament remains very valid. So that's the first reason I know it, because the, the, uh, literally the New Testament says that in multiple places. And secondly, I know it also because Jesus was, spoke of the Old Testament as authoritative, right? So like, if anyone has the authority to say, what is the word of God, like what remains of concern to Christians, it's Jesus. And when Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, he he emphasized that it was consistent with the ministry that he had. The things that he, he was speaking and teaching about were not somehow, um, uh, he wasn't negating the Old Testament, he was completing it, right? So, so we, we certainly have to read the Old Testament in the context of Jesus. But Jesus never, never would have thought of the Old Testament as being somehow irrelevant. Jesus affirmed the, the value of the Old Testament. All the apostles, Paul, uh, James, anyone who's, who's written um, in, or, or taught in the early church valued the Old Testament. So why teach from the Old Testament? The answer is because there is still much for us to learn from it. It is God's word. It is his instruction to his people. And so we still need to pay attention. But one other question I think we need to answer as we jump into this, is, 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 and as we're, we're reading and studying, is um, not, and, and not just the Old Testament, we have to ask this question, how do we read it well? 
Because, I, frankly, the real reason why I don't teach the Old Testament as often is because it's more complicated. <laughs> it's more complicated because I have to deal with some context. And context is important. When we read Scripture and when we read it well, we have to pay attention to context. I, um, I teach a sophomore Bible class uh, through some Old Testament books um, at a local Christian school, and I bore my students by saying this, that uh, it, when we interpret the Bible, we need to ask this question, what did it, that is the text that we're reading, mean to them then? That's what interpretation is. And then there's a secondary question when we apply it to ourselves, that's what does it mean to us now? I, I repeat that a lot. If Charles Walters were here, he could tell you. Yes, he does. It's very annoying. Um, if we are going to be good readers of scriptures, if we're going to be people who are, who are able to deal with the Old Testament or the New Testament, then we need to understand first, what was the writer saying and how was it being received to those to whom the writer was originally writing? That matters. That's called context. When we read scripture, we want to understand what the author was trying to say. And only once we've done that, what was the author trying to say to the people he was, he, 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 he was writing to? Only once we've done that can we go ahead and understand how to apply scripture to ourselves. So teaching for the Old Testament has this very overt secondary layer of complication because as you probably have noticed... When we read the Old Testament and we read these, these Hebrew scriptures, they're super Jewish, <laughs> super ancient Jewish. So not only is there separation of time, like which any culture 2,000 years uh, in the past is significantly different culturally, but also it's just this unique, in, in the unique context of ancient Judaism, which is a whole different layers of culture. So we, so we have to consider and think through these cultural differences in order to figure out how to apply it to our own lives. There's some complexity in it. It's good complexity. It's actually fun complexity. Um, but we do have to consider it. If we want to uh, make sense of the Bible, we have to consider, consider it in its context and then apply it to ourselves. And that's what I, I want to do this morning. Um, there's another reason, though, that the Hebrew Scriptures, that the Old Testament is, is really important for us as Christians. I, to me, this is... I don't want to say it's the most important. It's the one that gets me most excited. How about that? The one that gets me most excited, it's this. Um, well, I mean, you've probably heard the saying from Shakespeare's Tempest in the words of Antonio, the character. He says this, what's past is prologue, right? And by that, he means that the past always sets the stage for what's unfolding now. The old sets the stage for the new. That's just the nature of time, right? So Malachi's ministry... Um, he, is, he is rooted, uh, he, he's, he's speaking about things that really matter. Jesus' ministry is rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures. We anticipate the coming of the Messiah. We would anticipate that Jesus would come because we read the Old Testament and they are talking about a Messiah who would come, who Jesus is fulfilling, fulfilling that role. And we see, that, we see that anticipation in full view in the book of Malachi. See, Malachi was the last prophet in Israel until Jesus showed up. Malachi's ministry takes place about 100 years after Israel has come back from exile in Babylon. So if, you, if, you, if you're just like trying to contextualize the story, right? Israel had been carried away by the Babylonian Empire, dispersed into foreign lands, and Jerusalem was totally destroyed. But miraculously, God brings them back to Jerusalem um, and resettles them in the land. And they're anticipating so many good things to be happening because God has, has really done this, this crazy thing of bringing them back. So a hundred years pass... And things are not quite what they expected. A hundred years after Israel has come back from exile, Malachi is still here, but he is saying he's exhorting the people. He's exhorting them to get their eyes back focused on what God will do, to continue to, despite the, the passing of time, to anticipate that God is going to move and work. He's calling them to be faithful, and he declares them, he, for the sake of building up hope, starts to to encourage them to consider what God is going to do. In Malachi 3.1, 
probably like the, the, the fundamental verse, and we'll, and we'll be looking at this a little bit over the, over the course of the couple weeks here. Malachi 3.1, Malachi exhorts the people and he says this. Speaking on behalf of God, he says, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. So Malachi speaks to these people who have just been waiting for a hundred years for God to move and do something. And he says, no, it's really going to happen. He's sending his messenger. And when he does, he assures them, then the Lord you seek will come into his temple. See, they've been waiting on this Messiah. They've been hoping that now that God has restored them back into the land, God was finally going to deliver them. And so he's, Malachi is he's building up hope, building up anticipation. And you know what happens? Nothing. For 400 years, they're waiting. Now, I'm a patient man. <laughs> I don't have that kind of time, though. But for 400 years, they're just waiting. God has said, these things are going to happen. You're going to send your messenger. These things are going to happen. For 400 years, they're waiting until finally, and I'm jumping forward in the story a little bit right now, until finally John the Baptist is born. And his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is a priest who is in the waiting business. He's filled with the Spirit, and he prophesies over him. And we read about it in Luke 176. He says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. See, Zechariah, by the Holy Spirit, recognizes that that promise from 400 years ago, the Malachi that we've been waiting on, it's finally coming to pass now. When John is born, what happens is he, he goes out into the wilderness. You guys know the story from Sunday school, right? He goes out in the wilderness. He begins baptizing people. He's preparing the way for the Lord who would come. He's not the Lord, but he's preparing the way for Jesus, the one who will come and the one who will do the things that Malachi promised. We read about those in Malachi 3, 2, and 4. It says this, he, this is the one who's coming, will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of sil silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. So we're coming up, right? This is all to say, we're coming up to Christmas happens every December. And we're going to, in December, get into a, a series called Hope is Born. But understand, the basis of that hope that we might anticipate it, the reason that we can anticipate it and understand it and make sense of it, is because God has, since the beginning of revelation, of Him working and speaking and revealing Himself to people, He's been moving to bring about what we celebrate on Christmas, the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ, his, his death, resurrection, and all the things that would follow, the coming of the kingdom that follows Jesus' resurrection. And because of what we see and read about in books like Malachi and, and other Old Testament books, in other books of the Hebrew Scriptures, we see that things are not right, right? We, we, we see that there's a problem that needs fixing, and that is building up hope and anticipation for the one who would come and fix it. And in fact, we read about in the context of ancient Israel that even though they had lots of wisdom and revelation from God, like they had this group, the scriptures, they had prophets, people who were, who were instructing them, they still had issues that needed to be resolved. We read about them in Malachi 1-2, going back to the beginning of the book. God says through Malachi to the people, I have loved you, says the Lord. And yet you ask, how have you loved us? Right at the outset, we see some really interesting things. If I were talking to my sophomore Bible students, I would ask them to observe the structure of the book. And if you were to kind of take a, a, a big picture look at this, it's only four chapters. I would encourage you actually to go ahead and read it at some point. Sit down and read. It'll take you about 10 minutes. Um, there's, these, there's this series, there's structural things, and that's that there's statements and questions. Statements by God, like we see here, God says, I've loved you, and then questions 
from the mouth of God's people, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? And there's a series of these throughout the first three books, uh, first three chapters of the book of Malachi. Um, See, the problem that's happening, it's the age-old problem with Israel, is that God is super clear. He loves his people. But for whatever reason, they just can't see it. He says, no, it's just, I love you. And their response is, what? how? Show me one way in which, have you ever had a marriage conversation like that? This, no, you've never. Tell me how you helped me. <laughs> I, I'm not, my wife's not here, so. She would never say that. But anyways, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to get in trouble if I keep talking. I'm just, I'm just going to keep going. Um, look at <laughs> God has said, he says, I've loved you, but the people don't see it. So they look at their current state. Been sitting around waiting for a hundred years, God. You said you were going to do some stuff. They're discouraged. They feel like, man, God brought us back out of of exile. Shouldn't that be it? Like we went into exile. I mean, I know we kind of put ourselves there because we were really unfaithful, (laughs) right? But but we got back out of exile and and now we should have like, we should be okay. We should be moving on to to, to better things, to to more encouraging things. But they're discouraged. They feel like God brought brought them back and uh, everything should be perfect now, but it's not. Things are still difficult. They can't see or at least probably more, more to the point, they can't recognize or won't recognize God's faithfulness and love. And what God, do, God does in this, in the, through, through Malachi in the next couple of verses there, he says, look, open your eyes. He reminds them of their origin story. They came from, from two brothers, right? Jacob and Esau, descendants um, from, from, from ancient times, right? And, and there were two brothers. Uh, Esau, his descendants became the Edomites, and Jacob's descendants became the people of Israel. And he, he says, look at, he, he kind of he puts this question. He says, okay, how have I loved you? Well, let me ask you something. Where are the Edomites? Babylonians came in right when they took over Jerusalem, and they took the Edomites, and they displaced them into the land, and then they just are off into the wind forever, not to be remembered. They're no longer a people. They're absorbed into Babylon. And God says, how have I loved you? That could have happened to you. But we, I brought you back. I resettled you in the, in the land. Now that might seem like, oh yeah, people move all the time, right? But here's the thing. When you, in the ancient world, were conquered by a large world-dominating power, that was it. It was over for you as a people. You were now a Babylonian we read about in the book of Daniel, right? <laughs> they carry away these, these um, important people from Jerusalem, and Daniel resists just becoming a regular Babylonian. God preserves them through 70 years in a foreign land that is trying to say, no, 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 you just be like us. You just become one of us. God sustains them in the middle of that keeps some of them faithful and hopeful and, and, and rooted in him and then pulls them back out of Babylon and resettles them, restarts. That did not happen in the ancient world, especially not after two or three generations. It's a remarkable thing that they were there. And God says, how did I love you? Look, you're here. You shouldn't be here. You got, you got conquered by a serious world power that is really good at destroying peoples and sucking them into its vortex. It's amazing that God's people were brought back into the land. The Lord had given them another chance to be his people, but they don't get it. They don't recognize the grace and kindness of God in the middle of that. They just say, do you even love us, God? Do you even love us? But it doesn't end there. The problems that, that Israel is having here in the book of Malachi uh, continue on. Uh, God continues speaking, pressing his case through, through Malachi. Um, and we see again this, this statements and questioning defensive responses. Here in Malachi 1, 6 and 7, it says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master, but I am a father, where is my honor? And I am a master, where is your fear of me? says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. 
That's the statement. And then there's the question, yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting, God responds, by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? So God's, again, speaking to his people, people who are called to wait in hope, anticipating what he's going to be doing, continuing to be faithful to him in the land, rejoicing in what God has done, uh, restoring them. But there's a problem, and it's actually a problem he, he points out, particularly among the priests, among the leaders of the ancient Israelites here, and that's it. They've lost all fear of God. They've lost any sense that God uh, is in any way involved, really, in the Israel project. They've just gone, and they're going through the motions. They're keeping things going. But what God recognizes is actually they just despise God. They just despise his name. They have contempt for the worship of God. They're really just not at all interested in actually worshiping in actually doing the work of coming to God and giving uh, him their whole hearts. They want to keep up the appearances, right? This is what we'll read about in a second. They want to keep up the appearances of worshiping, but what God recognizes and calls them out for is that, man, you actually just despise me. You hold me in contempt. You have no actual love for me. He goes on to explain that the particular ways in which that's happening. The priests are doing things. They're, they're offering up, right? They were called to offer perfect, like the, the, the best things they had. And, and, and the priests uh, were keeping animals for worship. And they were called to take the best things of the flock, the, the, the best animals of the flock, for, to be sacrificed before God. And what they do is actually, they take the lame and the blind and the stuff they don't want, and they offer that to God. We read about it, um, Malachi 1.12. The Lord's table is defiled, and its product is food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance, and you scorn it, says the Lord of armies. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, says the Lord? See, it's not just that the priests stopped giving what they owed to God, but they've actually just come to see this whole worship, that this is their whole life, their vocation, their calling, the thing that God had set them apart to do from the time that Levi was, was appointed as priest. They've just come to see it as a nuisance and a burden. Their worship to God is just like something that they do out of obligation. And yet, they were called to something so much more particularly these people who had so much knowledge about what God was like and were called to lead the people into a true and righteous way of, of worshiping the Lord. Malachi reminds them of what they were called to in chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, My covenant was one of life and peace, and I gave these uh, to him. That is, the, these these. Um, rituals, these, this way of sacrificing. He gave these things to him. Uh, it called for reverence. And he, Malachi, or sorry, Levi, uh, revered me and stood in awe at my name. True instruction was in Levi's mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instructions. You've violated the covenant of Levi says the Lord of armies. See, the issue that ancient Israel had, and their priests in particular had, was that they'd become just so, so bitter and discouraged and cynical that they could no longer recognize the love of God that was sustaining them, that brought them out of exile. And they no longer could see the great joy and peace that it was to be people of the covenant, people who had a relationship with God, people who could call on him, and around, among whom he was present. They could no longer see that there was such great uh, an inheritance that they had from Levi and beyond to be people who walked with God and knew God and were protected by him and who were overseen by him. And the problem clearly is one of the heart. Israel lacked the vision, the hope, the reverence, the love for God.
And I mean, it's so clear. What the priests were doing, right, is that they were just trying to keep the wheel moving. But the bottom had fallen out of the whole thing. The motive, the love, the joy had fallen out. So, I mean, that's where the, what was up with them then. Now I think we can ask the application question. How is your relationship with the Lord? Do you operate from this place of recognizing the love that God has had for you? Or do you, like them, you don't count the blessings? You just take them for granted. I know I do. (laughs) I say that. I am unconscious of the many ways in which I do not recognize the grace of God. And yet I know from my own experience of my own heart that there are so many things, so many ways that he's been faithful to me and I just take it for granted. Or do we, like these priests, right? And I know we're not priests or whatever, But actually, according to the New Testament, we're all a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, called to go into the presence of God and offer up a sacrifice of worship before him. So do we take that lightly? And do we just come and we just like consider it a burden when we come to church or try to develop a prayer life or, you know, give to the Lord or whatever the thing is that we're doing unto God, do we think, oh, it's just another thing that I just do, you know? Just, just do it because of habit. I do it because of whatever. And it's a really hard thing to ask because in the end, you're asking yourself like, well, do I have so much control over my emotions? And do I have so much control over my heart and the spirit in which I'm doing things? The truth is, I don't think I do. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Because at least in ancient Israel, God seemed to indicate that there was a way for them to correct this, right? He wasn't setting them up for a futile task, that they would love him well, that they would worship him rightly. God isn't like that. God enables whenever he calls. God doesn't call us to something that we can't accomplish, So what do we do with that? Well, look, clearly the issue with Israel, and I think my issues, and I would imagine yours too, just because I think we're so similar. We have a lot in common. (laughs) All 50 of you or whatever. Um, It's an issue with the heart. Psalm 51, kind of a famous psalm of David when he had sinned against the Lord, and it's a psalm of repentance coming back to God, and he says this. He says, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. See, David understood very well, and as he was trying to come back to the Lord and stir up his hope and his affection and his faith in the Lord... He recognizes the calling that he has as someone with a relationship with God. And he recognizes the the essential element that surely God desires integrity in the inner self. And God actually teaches and instructs us how to apply wisdom deep within our hearts. The kind of wisdom that will continue and spring forth in faithfulness, that will bring about faithfulness that will bring about love. Integrity in the inner self is something that we can, through the grace and kindness and wisdom of God, actually develop, that we can actually attend to and care for. Can't flip a switch. You can't develop character and integrity just by wanting it, but wanting it is a first step to go and seek it. So how do we do that? 
I would argue that when we're bitter, when we lose sight of God, when we don't love Him, when we become resentful, when we just start to go through the motions, when we feel discouraged and like out of place and dissatisfied in our relationship with God, it is always the same root, the same source in terms of our, our, our uh, failures to walk into the wisdom that God has. And that is that we neglect the secret place. I think that's what Israel's priests were doing. It's what Israel's people were doing. It's what I do so often. I neglect the secret place. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Look at your, your life with God. Like your life with God is like Israel's life with God. It has layers, right? I think I've got a little picture of all the layers, right? Like you experience life on, on multiple levels, right? You have a family and you have a church family and you've got coworkers and you've got peers and you probably have other layers too. This is not an exhaustive picture of your life, right? But you get the idea. Like you are um, operating in different spheres, in different times and in different ways, um, and you probably have a sense that you express your worship and love and relationship with God in different ways in these different spheres, in your family. You're, you're kind, hopefully, it's something that I could work on, certainly, to your children and to your spouse, and you probably, maybe you pray together, maybe you study the Bible together, right? So you maybe you go, go to church together. You, you are living out your life with God in that sphere, you're living it out, certainly in your church family. I think, I think the church family is pretty clear. <laughs> we come here, we worship, we love each other, we build each other up, we encourage each other. If we have words from the Lord, we, we speak those things to each other. Um, we pray for each other. You know, we are motivated to be the church and to gather together and to pray and care for one another and to encourage each other. And that comes from somewhere. Likewise, I mean, you're, you're with your coworkers. I was just talking to... Kenny, can I share the story you said? Yeah, okay, cool. Kenny, Kenny's a rocket scientist. I love saying that. It's true. There's so many rocket scientists in Seattle. It's like, oh, yeah, another one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Kenny's a rocket scientist. <laughs> and he was uh, on, like, a long business trip, and he was just telling me in the lobby before, and I thought it was so cool. He was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, got, got some time away with the Lord, and, you know, he's away from his family, which he's sad about. But, you know, when, when you're away from, from, the, from your family, like, you get a lot of time alone, and, and he spent that time well studying and, and being with the Lord in the first week. And then he had a super busy second week. But he said, but I felt so prepared. I felt so prepared for that second week, one, because it was just busy. I was doing, like, 17, 18-hour days. I was going to be exhausted, but I felt rested and encouraged. And then he, like, he's like, and then I had, I loved this. I was like, I was... Yeah, I'm not sure if you saw my reaction, but I did like, ooh, a little. He's like, and then I had a, a word from the Lord for one of my coworkers, who's not, he's like not a Christian, has no context for it. I'm like, yeah. See, so, so Kenny like, is like moving out into his workplace and living his, his life um, among his coworkers and is like sharing words from the Lord with them. And I'm like, yeah, boldness. I like, I like to see that, right? So you, you have like some sort of way that you are among your peers and and you, maybe you're sharing words with them, maybe you're praying with them, maybe you're encouraging, praying for them, even if, if they're not aware. Like, you might be, might be just like, like, like trying to affirm them and bless them and encourage them. I, I hope we're doing all those things. And then, of course, we have our life with our peers, with our friends. We're trying to honor the Lord in those spheres of our life. There's basically what I'm saying is that we're living out and living from, uh, and living out our, our, our relationship with God in all of these spheres. But here is the thing. All of those uh, things are a part of your life with God. And we get that. Like, there are things that we do in those spheres because we worship the Lord. But if you're going to sustain that, if you're going to find as you live out your life before the Lord in those different areas, if you're going to find that motivation, that renewing, returning hope to continue to live for the Lord in those areas, you cannot neglect the most fundamental thing, which is the secret place. It's that bottom, I think I got another, yeah, there it is. That's the secret place. It's where just you and God are there. The fact is, if you are not living 
from the secret place, that is, spending time just with you and God, then you're going to find it that, that your motive to live out in family, church, coworkers, peers, it's going to fail you. You're going to lose the vigor, the desire. That stuff is all cultivated in the time with God. See, these priests got to this point where they were still doing the stuff, still offering the lambs or whatever. The people had no idea that they were taking the worst and just getting it done. Nobody had any clue. Only God. Only God knew that they were neglecting this relationship. Only God knew that they were not paying attention to him God could see through the pretense of it all. And it's not like, I don't, I don't think God is saying here, oh, tisk tisk, I deserve better. You know, God is not a megalomaniac who is insecure. God understands that wisdom and integrity from the inside that works its way outside is sustained in the secret place. You cannot, over the long term, live a life that honors God in the areas of family, church, work, among your peers, or any other place if you neglect the simple call that you have to be devoted in your heart, in prayer, in obedience to God himself in ways that only he would know about. And I will never see what goes on there. And your spouse may, may be able to see a little bit of it because that's your closest relationship if you're married. But they won't see the substance of what goes on there. Your kids, your coworkers, they won't know. That's why it's the secret place, right? But God knows. And you know. Because in that place, that's where the work of integrity is happening. And I, you know, guys, let me just be clear. I'm not here speaking from my great and solid lifelong commitment to living in the secret place. I am here telling you that I have tried to live without that for a long time. And it was not a good strategy. (laughs) I did not win the game. Because got to this point where uh, you're just like, you're like, oh yeah, I can do this stuff. But at some point you get, you get old enough and you get, you get used to life and you just say, why, why am I doing these things anymore? When you lose the why, you lose the motive really quick. But if you want the why, you have to sustain it. You have to continue to invest in that. If you spend time with the Lord, if you do, like we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, you know, actually developing a prayer life, actually growing that muscle, the discipline of prayer, you will find that the why, the motive for living for God, fills right in by itself. You don't have to ask yourself, why should I go to church when you are spending time with the Lord? Like, that's the, like you, you're going to want to be around brothers and sisters. You are going to want to be praying with people. You're going to be want to, wanting share, to be sharing your words, words with your coworkers. You're going to want to be a witness for Jesus among your peers if you are being filled up and hearing him say how he's loved you and cared for you and recognizing those things. If you're doing that time of just being with him, you're going to find that it overflows into these other sides, side of life. But I'm just telling you this, if you neglect it, you will find yourself unmotivated really quickly. And we, man, we brought up Daniel before, kind of impromptu, but you know, Daniel had everything against him. He was put out into this Babylonian culture and literally there is a, the whole uh, mess of courtiers uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, that's right, sounded wrong. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's palace, who are trying to train him up to be a good Babylonian. And um, it's not that he like didn't want to be a Babylonian or anything like that. He just wanted to be a follower of of God. He wanted that more. 
And so he said, no, I mean, I'm, just, I'm going to cultivate this relationship with God. It's going, to, it's going to play out in my life in terms of obedience. He was not in and of himself like, like singularly motivated to resist such a formative machine like Babylonian culture. And how much more so can we say that of, of, of our own culture? Like, I mean, we are, we are surrounded by an, an empire um, and a media machine and so much messaging that's trying to just like consume us and get our attention. Like, if we don't retreat, move into the secret place, like cultivate a relationship where we, where we, we love the Lord, like, like it is not going to be long until we just don't care about following the Lord in our day-to-day. And we'll get into this point where we just say, I don't, I don't see why. I don't see why anymore. It's no wonder that the priests felt this way. They've, when God says, hey, you've been defiling me, and they, they just say, what? what do you mean? We haven't been defiling you. We've been doing the stuff. And God says, no, you haven't. You know what the stuff is, and you know that you're lying to yourself, but you just lost all motive because you've been totally neglecting me in every part of your life. See, the, the, the secret place, it's like, a, it's like a fish tank. You guys ever had fish? My son had some fish. He killed him. It took him three weeks, right? It happened. I, I, every kid. I think I had some when I was a kid, too. I don't even remember. They lasted so short of a time. <laughs> it's, it's really easy to kill fish, and that is sad. I, I, I'm sad for the fish. We were, we were very sad. Actually, I got to tell you, uh, uh, <laughs> Noah's fishes, fish, fish, fish were named. Um, I think one was named Sam, and then the other five were named Sean. He had five fish named Sean. <laughs> so I thought that was funny, and they were named after Sean. Yeah, so, um, but... Sean died, and 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 Sam died. So it's really sad. Uh, I'm sorry. I apologize. But it's actually it's sort of relevant. Because, uh, like, the secret, pl- <laughs> the secret place is like a fish filter. <laughs> I need a moment. I think the analogy makes sense. Look, unless the water comes out, goes to another pace, passes through something that would purify it and clean it out, and then come back out into the world again, over time it just builds up and the fish die. It's the secret place where we're taking our experience of life and our questions and our difficulties and the questions we don't ask but should be asking, and we get our focus back upon the Lord and we just say, Lord, it's like, like I'm complicating my life and I'm, I'm playing games with you, but in the secret place we just sit in the Lord and He graciously and kindly but seriously does the things that we anticipated he would, that, that Malachi talked about, he purifies like launderer's soap, like a refiner of silver. As we sit with the Lord and we sit under the wisdom revealed in Christ and the power of the Spirit, convicting of sin, reminding us what he said is true, there's this process, cleansing, this filtering that's going on You don't have integrity in yourself, but you have a filter that cleans things out and sustains your life. If you turn the filter off, it doesn't work. If you don't run the water through the filter, it just gets dirty. And so that's it, guys. I mean, yeah, like we have... A lot of context, a lot of difference, right? But the problem was the same. They neglected the secret place. They neglected the, the real sense that actually, no, I am called by God. He is real. I am, I'm called to a relationship with him, and I need to develop the habit of coming back, of cycling through, of listening to him in the secret place. Worship team's going to come up, but I want to just, just say three quick things about the secret place. Number one, like in the secret place, like, like we're, this is just like a prayer relationship. It doesn't even have to be prayer in the formal sense of sitting down and talking to God, right? It's just like conversation, life with God, life in God's presence that you're just living in normal times. Like this is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, oh, you need one hour in the secret place every day. I say, no, spend the whole day just talking to God. That's the secret place. It's just you and God having a relationship with Him. 
Sure, you should probably have some formal prayer practices. Yeah, like you should do a lot of things, like you should eat a lot of foods. There's a lot of things involved in, in sustaining this and in, in being healthy. But I'm just saying, like, we need to do this work of the, of the secret place. And in the secret place, first of all, we need to hear, like Malachi 1-2, I've loved you. The relationship with Israel began when God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to love you, I'm going to sustain you, I am initiating a relationship with you, and it's gracious and kindness. It begins with, I love you. You have to know that. Like, like, and the enemy of that, the enemy of knowing that is shame. Some of you don't go into the secret place. You don't spend time with God because you have something in your head which is saying, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not loved by God. I have done something, or I am deficient, or I, uh, I'm going to fail. And so, I, so I just, I'm not going to go in there. And what we do in the secret place is, we all have that. We all have that from time to time, some of you more than others. But that is a lie. It's a lie that contradicts what God has already said that he's loved us. It's, it, it, and the, the gospel in particular, right? Like, the Israelites didn't have a full picture of what Jesus was going to do, but if, if there was any question of the love of God, Jesus settles it. For the sake of love, for the sake of redemption, for the sake of forgiveness and restoration, he goes to the cross, he takes on the penalty for your sin and for my sin, for the sins of the world. He dies for them to settle their debt. And then he rises again and pours out his spirit and embraces people through his grace. And that is the the, the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection is the thing that we hang on to by faith. And so if you're in the secret place and you feel like the shame and you feel like this, this um, like, like not welcome by God, what you do in that moment is you just say no to your thoughts, to whatever is in you that is resisting it. You say no and you speak to your inward um, self, whatever's going on, whatever's intruding to the secret place of what God has spoken to be true. And that's that through faith in him, we can leave our sin behind and it is separated as far as the east is from the west. And it's, it's not who you are anymore. It does not define you, your shame and your, your guilt and the things that you've done. Just like David. I mean, David is writing this psalm in the midst of a serious serious blunder in his life. But he's going back into God and he says, Lord, you desire integrity and uprightness. And he's asking the Lord to restore. Like you are not coming to a God who has withheld anything, but who through the grace, of, uh, grace and, and, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ has opened the door wide open so that nothing could keep you from him, except your own self, except your own not willingness to step in. Man, if we come to the secret place, we receive love from him, and if we find in that place shame, we just put that down by the word of God. We remind ourselves what's true. And then finally, I think we also just need to, in this place, in this place of, of relationship with him, we need to ask him to develop within us that integrity and that love for him. Um, uh, someone encouraged me to read um, uh, uh, Heinz Feet on High Places, right? It's a cl classic, right? <laughs> I, think, uh, I think someone said, it's like the, it's like the, the <laughs> this is them, not me. <laughs> said, it's the women's pilgrim's progress. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's really it, but it's an allegory um, and, and it's good. And, and there's this scene where the main character, whose name is Much Afraid, is talking with the shepherd. You kind of get the allegory, right? <laughs> talking to Jesus and um, basically setting out to the high places, that is from a place of like knowing God, 
to a place of having a full and robust and fulfilling life with him. And at the beginning of this journey, much afraid, meets with the shepherd, and the shepherd says, what I need to do is plant the seed of love in your heart, and then it's going to flower. And that seed comes because Jesus first loved us. Jesus like expresses his love for us, but that being caught up in that love and being the object of his love and receiving that love starts to do something within us that it actually develops our love for him in response for his love for us. In the secret place, as we receive and we think about the word of God spoken to us, like and the love that he has for us and how, how, how thoroughly he's proved that to us, we receive that love and then we start to develop that love back for him. I think a lot of times our failures to have integrity in the other spheres of our life is because we have not let that love for him grow. We have not nurtured that love that he's planted in us by the gospel. We need to let that thing come to full fruition. There's an urgent need. The most urgent thing in your life is to get with the Lord. Is to just spend time with him. Even more urgent, if you aren't a Christian, is to just hear that love the forgiveness of God spoken over to you. It's, it's a free gift for anyone who would have it. Even more urgent is that we just need to receive from him that love, his sacrifice, his forgiveness, take that in, and then we need to, if you're a believer, man, cultivate that love. Live out that wisdom. So I'm going to make the awkward transition to the guitar now. But as we, um, just going to worship a little bit here, you guys just stand up, and I want to pray for a second. Because what we're doing is we're just coming before God with what we have, which is sort of just our desire our desire to worship him, our desire to be transformed, our desire to meet with him, to seek him. We're asking, Lord, would you renew us? Would you sustain us? Lord, would you do a work in us? Let's worship. Let's worship.